All right, please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 in your Bibles. The Good Shepherd, the Righteous Branch. One of the particular frustrations that we have witnessed in the prophet Jeremiah over the course of this book is the frustration that he has had specifically over the prophets, the priests, and the pastors who have kept these people in a false place of assurance and who have scattered the people with error rather than confirming them in truth. As Jeremiah stood to tell the people what the Word of God had said He did not just contend with their hearts of unbelief. Rather, he also contended with other spiritual authorities in the land that were directly contradicting his message of judgment, repentance, and mercy. And as we all know, even from our own day, as difficult as it may be for people to come to a place where they are even willing to acknowledge the authority of the true and living God, That problem becomes much more difficult when the people with a broad reach who claim to represent the God of the Bible are busy about the work of undermining everything that the Word of God says through their ministries. But there is coming a day when this will all be undone. We talked about that in Revelation 20 this morning as we had our second of three messages on the kingdom. There is coming a day when all of this will be undone, when all of the lies will be made known, when uh, judgment and justice and righteousness will prevail. And today we get to see some of these promises from the context of Israel's judgment. Now what we're going to consider today fits hand in glove, as I mentioned just a moment ago, with what I preached just this morning in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, as we talked about the prophetic context of the Millennial Kingdom this morning, we're going to just look at more verses that establish that prophetic context this evening. Some verses that I didn't cover this morning, we're even going to have some overlap within these two sermons in relation to the actual passages themselves that we will cover. We spent some time in Ezekiel this morning. We'll spend some time in a different passage of Ezekiel this evening, as well as some overlap of the same. And so we are going to uh, perhaps add, and this is maybe a, a, a value add to what you received this morning in relation to the teaching on the Millennial Kingdom. And we will pick up today in Jeremiah 23, only seven, actually eight verses today that we're going to cover. And we'll begin in verse one where the Bible says this, Woe unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. So first one, verse one does not reveal that this is a new message, but rather a continuation of the message that we studied last week in chapters 21 and 22. Recall that last week, pastor had been sent by King Zedekiah to Jeremiah and he had been sent to seek mercy from the Lord and the Lord responded certainly not with mercy but but much to the contrary with a scathing rebuke of their sinfulness that the line of David had failed in its faithfulness and it is this reality that compels the Lord's words this evening as well so we have this 
this reality that Zedekiah will be resisted, that all of his, his siblings, his, his nephew, his, uh, um, his two brothers, that they were resisted as well, he being in the final line of these kings because of their evil, because of their unfaithfulness. And God continues with this message and he says, woe be to the pastors. Now this word pastors here is the, is the Old Testament word for shepherd. And he says, woe be to the pastors which scatter the sheep of God's pasture, of my pasture. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, if you were to look for this word, this Hebrew word, it would be translated shepherd. This is the only book of the Old Testament where the word is translated pastor and only nine times within this book. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, we are going to see it used twice in this manner and these are the last two times the word is translated pastor in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. These are the, this is numbers 8 and 9 of the nine times that the word is found in Jeremiah. Now in Israel we know who the priests are. The priests obviously were those who ministered in the tabernacle and the temple and, and who did that work of teaching the people. We know who the prophets are. Most likely der, der, derivation from the school of the prophets set up possibly in the days of Samuel and so we would call them kind of professional prophets, if you will. But there is some question as to who the shepherds, who the pastors might be. But we might understand from these last two chapters, going from God's scathing rebuke of the, if we can call it the aristocracy, his scathing rebuke of the line of David, of the king of Judah, heading straight into this warning against the pastors that when God speaks of the pastors or the shepherds of the flock of Israel, he is speaking of her political leaders. In this context specifically, the divinely appointed line of kings through the line of David. And this is not necessarily uh, a surprising or a giant leap for us, as we would understand that the kings of Israel, specifically the Davidic line of kings, was divinely appointed. They were the Lord's anointed, right? Uh, Saul was the Lord's anointed. David was the Lord's anointed. And in 2 Samuel 7, God established the Davidic line as his, as his line, as the anointed line, as the line through whom the kings of Israel would pass, the recognized official kings of Israel. And to that end, uh, we should not be surprised that they would be called something so personal, something so important as a pastor or a shepherd. And to this end, when God promises to send the good shepherd, when God promises to send the great shepherd, he is thus speaking of a, not just of a, of, of a good leader, but of a king, of a divinely appointed king. And that's going to come up more importantly as we continue through the text. So we do continue. And we find this in verse 2. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. So God gives reasons for his anger against these pastors in verse 2. He says, you leaders, you kings, you shepherds, those of you of the line of David who have been ruling for generations now, you are responsible for feeding the flock of God. You are responsible for protecting, 
for uniting the flock of God. And rather than feeding them, rather than uniting them, rather than protecting them, you have scattered them. You have scattered them. Not even you've let them be scattered, but you have scattered them. They have, you have driven them away rather than drawing them to me. And God says, because you've not fed them, because you've not visited them, but rather you have driven them away from me, I am going to visit you with evil. So that is what God promises for these false shepherds. That he will visit them with evil. Now in verse 3, God transitions very definitively. We could almost say that it would be better if verses 1 and 2 were a part of the last chapter rather than this next chapter and that this next chapter starts with verse 3. Because here we find, as we are quite comfortable with seeing at this point, as is entirely characteristic of our Lord and of prophecy, we are about to see mercy. That God's promise of judgment does not come without a continued promise, a continued promise of redemption, of Mercy, And this is what we talked about this morning when we said that one of the primary characteristics of the millennial kingdom is that it was about God ruling and reigning over Israel, that God still has promises for Israel. And we don't lose sight of this. We'll talk about it more this evening. And we don't lose sight of this because of things like this, because that with every promise of judgment comes a promise of restoration. With every promise of judgment comes a call unto repentance and mercy. With every promise of judgment, there is hope. And that hope is intrinsically tied to the very promise and character of God to where if he failed at allowing, at bringing about the promises that he made to Israel, then he most certainly is not God. And so in verse 3, we read this, verses 3 and 4. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase, and I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking saith the Lord. So God promises that there's coming a day when he will gather the remnant of his flock from all the countries where they have been driven. Now, if we compare this with the earlier messages that we read, specifically as we think of Jeremiah chapter 2, then we can understand here that God's promise is not just about Judah, but is about the entire nation of Israel, both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. That God will gather them from all the countries where they have been driven by their bad shepherds, by their poor leaders, and the evil of, their, uh, of these false shepherds. And God will restore them to his flock, to his fold, and they will be fruitful, and they will increase, and they will be given faithful shepherds who will feed them, and they will no longer live in fear and dismay that comes from rebellion of lies, and they will no longer lack the spiritual blessing of God. And this is the promise that God makes to Israel. Now, we have experienced some of these promises before in the book of Jeremiah. We have experienced many times, in fact, God promising to restore them, promising to regather them, both northern and southern tribes of Israel. But as we have seen throughout this book and as we see throughout prophecy, the nature of progressive revelation, which we are going to consider more this evening, we see that God adds a little something extra to his promise this evening. And this revelation helps us, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, to know the timing of these events, to know what God is doing. We'll find that these promises connect us through the progression of revelation in the Word of God, specifically to Messiah and His kingdom, which is to come. 
So we read in verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So God promises that a day is coming when the seed of David would be raised and it would raise what the Lord calls a righteous branch, like the branch of a tree. In this case, we might think of it as the branch of a family of the lineage of David. And this righteous branch will be a king who will reign and prosper who will execute judgment and justice. And notice this, it doesn't just say justice in Israel, it says justice in the earth in verse 5. By this we see that there is a promise of a king, and that king will come from the line of David, and he will not just be king over Israel, but that he will be king over the whole earth. What else does the Bible say will happen in these days? Well, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell in safety, speaking of the two kingdoms. North and south kingdoms will be made one kingdom and will be saved from the physical bond, uh, from the, the, the bondage and the dispersion that they've been in. And in that day, this righteous branch, this just king, will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now I'm going to focus on this name for just a moment. We've spoken before about the general consistency of the King James naming convention as it relates to these things. It's not entirely consistent as we'll see even this evening in our study. But what we generally see is that anytime you see uh, the Lord, uh, the name Lord in caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are dealing with the name undergirding it of Jehovah. The name undergirding it called uh, of the Lord's name Jehovah. So we see in verse 5 when the Bible says, saith the Lord that Jehovah is the name Lord being spoken of there. Now, if it were the other word for Lord, which is the more common word master, Adonai in the Hebrew, you would just see capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And you would never see it in all caps if it was not the name of Jehovah. Simultaneously, if it's just the word God, then it's Elohim and it's capital G, lowercase O-D. And that's fairly consistent. There are a couple other names uh, for God in the Bible, maybe not necessarily always the God of the Bible, but the other gods of the Bible, the false gods, and that would be Baal, right? Which is just the, the word for God, or Balaam, which is the plural, uh, like Elohim, there's the I am at the end of it, Elohim. So to Baalim, uh, the I am at the end, that is actually the Hebrew suffix, which makes it plural. And so we have that plural there, the majestic plural we call it, and that is Elohim. And then there is a time where you see the, the, the word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then capital G, capital O, capital D, Lord God, together. And what's happening here is that we see the two words Adonai and Jehovah put together in the context, that he is the Lord who is Jehovah, our master Jehovah. And obviously the King James translators couldn't say Lord, Lord, that would be pretty silly. So they use Lord God and then they make God in all caps in order to distinguish between Lord, Adonai, and God, uh, the, the word there, Jehovah. And here in the text, we see the word, the Lord, our righteousness in all caps. And it's in all caps as it is his name. 
And we do see there that it is a a derivation of the word Jehovah, Jehovah Tzidkenu, which is um, the Lord our righteousness. And we have that that idea. Um, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Tzedek is that word righteousness. Adonai Zedek, the king Adonai Zedek in the Old Testament, uh, Lord of righteousness, not not king our righteousness, the king of righteousness, the Lord of righteousness. Here we see Jehovah Tzedeku, which is uh, Tzedkenu, excuse me, which is also that idea of righteousness. I'm sorry, my my Hebrew is not exactly up to snuff as far as my pronunciation is concerned. But um, that's that idea there that we find of righteousness, Jehovah our righteousness, and they have that in all caps as it is the name of Jehovah. Now, there is an interesting instance, which we'll see in just a little bit, where there is a name that does not include the word Jehovah, but which the King James translators interpret to be Jehovah, and so they also put it in all caps. And I'll show you that when we get there. But, but um, we continue in verses 7 and 8. The final two verses we'll, we'll consider in the context before we move into other passages of Scripture today. And we read this in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So finally, we have a reiteration of a passage which we read in Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah is very good about repeating himself, but we've seen it in several different contexts where we see the same verses repeating themselves over and over and over again. Of course, we read them as repetition. Uh, Jeremiah was, generally speaking, writing to a number of different groups at a number of different times, and so it wasn't repetition. Just as in Jesus' day, we find uh, Jesus use a parable in Matthew, and then he uses a parable in Luke, which is kind of the same, but not really the same. And some people say, well, yeah, it's the same teaching, and it's just scribal error that accounts for the differences. Well, Well, who's to say that? Who's to say Jesus wasn't teaching one thing to this group and one thing to that group, and there was a slight difference because of his different audience? Who's to say that they are actually the same parable, or that maybe, just maybe, they are actually slightly different parables? Who's to say that we should treat them the same instead of perhaps maybe treating them as individual parables because uh, maybe they are, in fact, uh, individual parables. Maybe they have their own meaning. Maybe that accounts for the differences. Anyway, uh, Jeremiah is most likely speaking to different audiences each time, and yet he says the same thing in this case because he has the same message to give. And this is a very important message. See, to this day, the very essence, the character of redemption as it relates to the people of Israel is Egypt. When you think of uh, Israel's redemption, when you think of their right to the land of Israel, that we would say that they have the right to the land, that it is their land, that it is their, their, their historic land, that it is their divinely given land. It all goes back to, of course, Abraham, but then to the Exodus. It goes back to the time when the Lord, with a very mighty hand, brought them out of the land of Egypt. It goes back to that redemption. They celebrate that redemption every Every year with the Passover and they remember that redemption. They identify themselves as God's chosen people, as God's redeemed people. And that redemption is keyed into the Exodus. 
And God says there's coming a day when that redemption is no longer going to be keyed into the Exodus, but rather it's going to be keyed into them, the seed of Israel, of the house of Israel being brought out of the north country from all the countries where they have been driven and being reunited in the land. And of course, uh, a part of this promise, as we see, is them being reunited under the good shepherd, being reunited under the righteous branch. There is a direct historical uh, prophetic link between the day that the righteous branch is revealed between the the ministry of the good shepherd and this change in their redemptive status their change in this redemptive character and to this day Israel has not changed in their character and by the way let me just say this as well for those that are convinced or or have heard the arguments that Israel has been replaced by the church and that the church is Israel and these sorts of things Israel or the church is not defined by this redemption either. This prophetic redemption of being brought from the north country, being gathered together from every country, being regathered and being brought back to their own land, that has nothing to do with the church. That's not what we are defined by. Our redemption is not defined by a regathering, a bring, being brought back from the north, being brought back into our own land. Our redemption is, being de- is defined as a redemption that does not have a land. We are redeemed under Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is our call to redemption. The cross of Jesus Christ is, our, is the character of the church. The character of the church is that we don't have a land. We are from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That is not the character of this promise. The character of this promise is that Israel themselves will be redeemed. And that is very important for us to understand. So we see here two concepts that I would like us to follow a little bit uh, closer as we walk through the text. The concept of the righteous branch and the promise of the righteous branch. And then we will also touch on the concept of the good shepherd, which we see here are, again, closely linked. This is uh, perhaps why the King James translators chose to make verses 1 and 2 a part of chapter 23 rather than the end of 22, so that we can see the link between the good shepherd in verses 1 and 2 and the righteous branch in verses 3 uh, through 5 and, and, and really 3 through 8. So as we begin our study of the righteous branch, we go to Isaiah chapter 4. And in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read this. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. And so this is preaching about the day of the Lord. And it's going to be a terrible day, which is where we got that first verse about the women crying out for men to take on their name because there will be so many dead men. And and uh, it's just going to be a terrible, terrible time. And we don't have time to get into all of all of what that means. But. It's going to be a terrible time, and we even see that here, that, that, that there's going to be this awful time, and then in this awful time there will arise a righteous branch. In that day, a branch of the Lord that is beautiful will arise, and everyone that is alive in Zion, all the remnant of Jerusalem at that time, speaking of the end times, speaking of the, the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, the end of that week, when the Lord returns, His second advent, everyone that's there will be called holy, they'll be saved. And so we see that this this concept of the branch, first not called the righteous branch, just called a branch, 
a beautiful and glorious branch that will be revealed in the day of their deepest suffering. We continue there to Isaiah chapter 11. We talked about this one this morning. And in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and following, the Bible says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it continues to, to speak of this branch as one who will execute righteous judgments in the, in the land. And we see the promises of the millennial kingdom as we spoke of this morning. And here once again we see that all of these millennial promises <coughs> come from the stem of Jesse, who was the father of David, right? So it's Jesse, then David's the stem of Jesse. All of these promises are coming from the stem of Jesse and one who is called the branch. A branch shall grow out of Jesse's roots and that he will be this one who will be king and be king in justice. We skip thus ahead to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is that great prophecy of the suffering servant and we're going to come back to that at, at the end of our time together today. But in Isaiah 53 beginning in verse 1 the Bible says this, Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there shall no beauty. There, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is Israel speaking about this one who is the branch. People. I just read the other day a person who was arguing that, that the servant of the Lord, as it's spoken of in Isaiah 52 and 53, is Israel because a few chapters earlier Israel is called the servant of the Lord. But then what do you do with this promise of the branch, of the tender plant that would grow before him? It does not link to a few chapters earlier in the servant. It links to Isaiah 11 and the branch that would grow. It links to Isaiah 4 and the branch that would grow, the root. The, 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 the sapling, the branch that would grow. That is what we're talking about here. This is the Messiah. And Israel saw him with no comeliness, no beauty, just a tiny little thing. And we're going to see that concept come out very strongly in our next passage of, of study as it relates to the branch, which is in Ezekiel chapter 17. And in Ezekiel 17, we see this emphasis upon the fact that this branch that would grow is not a branch of power and of might and of, 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 of honor and of comeliness and of beauty in that sense. But rather, it's a very small, humble branch that then grows into honor and power and beauty. And what we see in Ezekiel 17 is a prophecy of what would happen to Zedekiah in his day. And then how that gives way to another promise, another prophecy of Messiah. Now, I'm not going to put this text up on the screen for you. On the screen, I'm actually going to have some minor animations um, that are supposed to kind of help you understand a little bit of what I'm reading as I go through. So I'm going to read the text, and you can look at those animations just to kind of understand what's being described here, and then we'll talk about it a little bit together. So we read in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto to me saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel and say, Thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long winged, 
full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches toward him that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. It was planted in a good soil by great waters that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. Say thou, thus saith the Lord, shall it prosper? And he goes on to say, it shall not prosper. And then God explains the riddle, beginning in verse 11. And he explains that the tree, I'm not going to read it all, but he explains that the tree is Israel. And he explains that the great multicolored eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. And that Nebuchadnezzar came into Israel and he plucked off the top branch. And this top branch was King Jehoiachin. We recall from last week, he's the one that reigned for only three months. He was the grandson of Josiah. And um, uh, he was there, uh, also called Jeconiah or Coniah, and he was taken out of his, his rule because his father had been killed by Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was afraid that he would thus want to overthrow the kingdom because his father had been killed by Nebuchadnezzar and such. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar deposes him and instead plants into that field his uncle Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is placed in, the youngest of the three sons of Josiah, uh, into the field of Israel and given a very good situation. Uh, God calls it, this is the vine that grows underneath, the fruitful vine in the fruitful field that was planted in the field of Israel. However, the king did not stay under Babylon happily. Instead, he, his vines grew toward a second eagle, and that second eagle was, in fact, um, Egypt. And so we have Egypt as the vine. And because this vine, who was in a prosperous place, if only he would have listened and obeyed, as God told them to Babylon, uh, instead he rebelled against Babylon. And God said, don't do that. We'll see it again in prophecies that are to come. Don't rebel against them because I have sent them. They, uh, Zedekiah rebelled anyway. And, and God says, because of this, he will not prosper. So we have this, this parable. This riddle. And at the end of this, we see a prophetic link from Zedekiah's situation as this uh, um, seed that had been planted and, and um, Jeconiah's situation as the twig that had been pulled from the tree and taken into the land to another twig. And we find that uh, Jeconiah himself is actually, Jehoiakim, is actually within the lineage of Jesus Christ. It would be a further lineage of that same man who would uh, eventually have a son named Joseph who would be the father of Jesus. And so we have this link here, if you look at the Matthew 1 genealogy. But we see a, a promise of a second twig, a second branch, beginning in Ezekiel 17, verse 22. I'll read it for you. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop it off at the top of this young 
of his young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent. So whereas Nebuchadnezzar took the king, the, this, this branch, and planted him in Babylon, the city of merchants, God says, I will take the topmost branch and I'm going to plant it on a high mountain. Verse 23, In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all the fowls of every wing in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. So it is we have this great promise that God would take a branch from out of Israel and that he would make this branch great and it would become a tree under whose shadows everything else would rest. Thus we see Ezekiel take the Isaiah idea of the tender plant, which has no comeliness, of the branch in which uh, there is no comeliness and drive home the point that out of Israel would come a branch that would become a great king, but he would start out lowly. He would start out humble. He would not start out as a great king. He would start out as a humble man. He would start out lowly and then the Lord would exalt him. He would not be exalted by the nation. He would not be exalted by man. He would be lowly before man and exalted by God. And this is Jesus Christ. It's also reminiscent of Jesus's teaching in Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom about the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a mustard seed, which is planted small, very small seed, which is planted and grows into something tremendously great. Now we move into our final Old Testament book of which we are going to trace this concept of the branch, and that's the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet after the captivity, after the 70 years, well after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when the nation of Israel had been brought back into the land. Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest are in the land attempting to see the walls built, attempting to see the temple rebuilt. And Zechariah... The book of Zechariah is intended to compel the nation to finish the temple of the Lord, which they had begun, but then had left unfinished. And all throughout the book, there are any number of references and promises that Messiah is coming. We studied this morning Zechariah 14 and the promises of the day of the Lord and when the day of the Lord would come and all of the implications of it. And then, of course, of the kingdom which was to come. Now, Joshua is the high priest at this time, and we find that Joshua becomes a very strong type of Jesus, where he's the type and Jesus is the anti-type, where he becomes this, this prophetic symbol of the Messiah that is to come. And that should not surprise us, even in the very fact that Joshua and Jesus share the same name. Jesus is a Greek name. It is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yahashua or Yeshua, right? So we read in Zechariah 3, verses 8 through 10, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, 
For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua and upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, ye shall call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Notice here I had mentioned before about the all caps. Here we find the word branch in all caps. And we find the King James translators doing that because they are equating this branch with Jehovah, even though the name here is not Jehovah as it has been in the other cases. So there's a case that, that doesn't quite reflect the idea that Jehovah is always capitalized, but in this case, simply the fact that the identity of Jehovah is emphasized through all caps. And here we see this promise of a servant, the servant of the Lord, who would be the branch. Now we're seeing the concept of the servant and the branch brought together again. We see the concept of the the shepherd and the branch brought together in Jeremiah. We see in Isaiah 52 and 53, the concept of the servant and the branch brought together. And here once again in Zechariah 3, the servant and the branch are one and the same. Invoking this picture, Zechariah seeks to draw the minds of the readers back before the captivity to the promises of Isaiah some, some 250 years earlier, to the promises of Jeremiah some 100 years earlier, and of Ezekiel some 100 years earlier after this regathering. And he's trying to compel the people to remember that there's more to building this temple than just building a building, that they are building a temple so that the nation can be prepared for their Messiah. That the branch is coming, and if the branch is coming, then they need to get this temple built. That's what Zechariah is doing here. That's why he's invoking these prophetic images from the things that, that were promised by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel before the captivity. Now things would become even more clear. Zechariah here says that, that the branch would remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That's the day of the Lord. Things would become more clear in the final passage about the branch, at least that I could find, in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9-13, through 13, where we read this. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, and Tobijah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the prophet tells them that there's coming a man whose name is the branch, who remember connects us to that name as well, the Lord our righteousness. And Zechariah says he will build the temple of the Lord and bear its glory and sit within it and rule on his throne and not only be king but also priest. He will be priest and king, interceding between the people and God. He will be their prophet. He will be their priest. He will be their pastor. He will be all three. All three things that failed in the days of Jeremiah will be realized in one man who will sit in the temple and will rule from the temple. And again, this is Zechariah saying, so build the temple, right? And this is the idea here. And what we find is that in this time, there will be peace. The council of peace shall be between them both. He will be rule on his throne and priest on his throne. He will be the good priest, the good shepherd, the good prophet.
Now, as we consider these things from Jeremiah, we see them set into a woe against the pastors of the flock who scatter and destroy the kings. But we also then see this picture of the flock. Certainly here we find all these promises that the branch will be king, but what we also understand from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel is that the king and the shepherd are one. And so we have this other picture of the good shepherd, which is also very significant prophetically. We talked this morning about Ezekiel 34 and then into 37 and the promises of the good shepherd. We'll come back to them just for a moment this evening The righteous branch is said to be a part of God's solution to these false shepherds, looking for the day when God would set up shepherds over the nation that would feed them rather than scatter them. And so we find, going all the way back to Isaiah, again, this is 100 years before Jeremiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. So once again, in the days of Isaiah, we we see introduction to this concept of, of the Lord shepherding his flock. And you're going to see this very characteristically throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are the three major prophets. Isaiah prophesied first, Jeremiah prophesied second, Ezekiel prophesied third. There is some overlap between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, at the time that Zedekiah just becomes king, it was in that deportation of Jehoiakim that Ezekiel left, right? And so Ezekiel will, will be soon beginning his prophetic ministry and saying some of these same things. But we see this correlation where Isaiah says something and Jeremiah elaborates on it and Ezekiel clarifies it to the nth degree. And so we pass through the days of Jeremiah. We have Isaiah here. Of course, Jeremiah we're talking about right now. We're talking about the, the, the evil shepherds that scattered the flock and the Lord regathering them and all of his promises into the, in that regard. And now we go to the, to the days of Ezekiel. Now, we read a little bit of this this morning. But in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, we read this. God says, I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. And if you study Ezekiel 34 and then into 37, you'll find that the sum total of what God is saying here is that he would become the good shepherd. We skip a few verses and we read, picking up in Ezekiel 34, verse 22. Therefore will I save my flock... And they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and, will, and I will make with them a covenant of peace." And will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them a, uh, and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. 
So God promises there would come a day when he would appoint over the nation a good shepherd called David, his servant. For those of you that were here for my Ezekiel series or have listened to it online, we know that uh, there is a likelihood that, that the David, the prince who is here, will perhaps either be someone of the lineage of David or will be David himself uh, in his resurrected form, in his resurrected body. And then, of course, the seed that rules and reigns over them all, that is above the prince ruling and reigning, will be Jesus Christ himself. And if you study Ezekiel, you find that this is the only real uh, interpretation that, that in a literal sense makes sense because we find that David the prince is offering sacrifices unto the king. So David the prince is not the king, even though they're both of the lineage of David. So go back and listen to that if you want a little bit more context there. So here's what we find. We find this promise of, uh, in Isaiah in Jeremiah and Ezekiel of a tender plant with no comeliness, beautiful but not comely, and that this tender plant is called the branch, and he's equated with the shepherd, who is equated with the king, who is equated with the Lord our righteousness. God promised to give them a good shepherd, to give a good shepherd to his people, to rule and reign over them, to regather the flock of God, to bring them up from the north, to change the very character of and the essence of their Redemption from Egypt to this regathering in the day of the Lord when all will be terrible until the righteous branch arises and saves them. We see the promise that this righteous branch who is plucked up would be planted in a mountain, would grow into a great tree. We see the correlations between this and even the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image that is destroyed and then that unhewn rock becomes a great mountain. We see links to New Testament principles as it relates to Jesus and the parable of the mustard seed. But we see an even stronger link in John chapter 10 that takes all of the things that we've talked about and places it right at the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own sheep whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. When Jesus says on that day in John 10, I am the good shepherd, he is taking responsibility for all of the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as they relate to the branch, to the good shepherd, to the king, to the Lord of righteousness. That is what Jesus is saying on that day. What Jesus is saying on that day is, I am this one who, has promised, who God has promised to send. I am Messiah. Jesus is the righteous branch whose name is the Lord our righteousness who would come from the root of David. This branch was rejected as the Bible says he would be, as Isaiah 53 says he would be, as Isaiah 4 said he would be. But as we have been studying in our Revelation series, we know that there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will be regathered as God has promised and their Messiah will, be, will deliver them in the day of darkness and take away their sin and rule the world as king and be their good shepherd as Jeremiah chapter 23 promises, as Zechariah chapter 4 and chapter 6 promise that they will look upon this branch and they will believe this branch. As Isaiah 
chapter 4 promised that in the day, in, in the terrible day when there's nothing left, that everyone who remains in Zion will be holy. When the branch, when the tender plant arrives. And all of that, which he is coming to do in his second return, was established and made possible by the events of his first return. Isaiah 53 was accomplished in part. It wasn't fulfilled, but it was accomplished on the day of Jesus' death. Why accomplished but not fulfilled? Well, because what's happening in Isaiah 53 is Israel is saying, we esteemed him stricken of, uh, smitten, stricken of God and afflicted. We did not love him. We destroyed him. It's quoting a day when the nation of Israel will acknowledge that they killed their Messiah. That Messiah had done everything for them. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the day that, that Israel says... Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus has borne our sin. Jesus has borne our iniquity. That's the day that Isaiah 53 will be fulfilled. But the day what Isaiah 53 is describing was accomplished was on, was, was on the cross. The resurrection, wherefore he's he, he exalted, and of course that is yet to come. And so let me remind you, in Isaiah 53, we read verses 1 through 2. Let's read just a little bit more as we close today in verses 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Today we live in the hope of our Lord coming as the conquering king. That's what Jeremiah is promising. That's what Isaiah was promising. That's what Ezekiel is promising. The day when the good shepherd would rule, when he would regather his flock, when he would rule them as they desire to be ruled. That day is coming. But today we live in the shadow of our Lord's righteousness. We live in the shadow of our Lord's Sacrifice on the cross to save us from our sins. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that anybody who will recognize that they are separated from God because of their sin, that their sin is separated from them, them from God and made it so that God, who is righteous, cannot have fellowship with them. And that there's no amount of effort that they could possibly engage in. No money, no goodness, no wisdom, no power, nothing in and of themselves that can reconcile themselves to God because they're already guilty. But that Jesus Christ, because he was never guilty, because he was sinless, did on the cross what we could not do for ourselves. And he took our punishment and he, he took God's wrath upon himself and he paid the debt so that anyone and everyone who will accept that gift, who will not say, no, I'm going to get there my way. I, I have my own plans. I have a plan. B, I have a safety net. I've got something that I think God will accept. Anyone who acknowledges that there's nothing that they can do, that they are entirely bankrupt of any capacity in and of themselves to get themselves to heaven, but that Jesus did the work for them and accept that work, recognizing that he died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead, that he rose again on the third day in victory over sin and death and hell, and that validates that everything that he said he would do, he can do, and it validates that because he is alive, he can make us alive as well, and if he will believe that, you will be saved. This is the reality which undergirds the lives which we live.
So we echo the words of Paul. Because just as Jesus was exalted through his submission, just as he was that little branch that, became, that will become the great tree, because of his submission to the Lord, we echo the words of Paul in Romans 14, verse 8, that says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Because it is the Lord who exalts. He will exalt Jesus in the day. Jesus was that, that submissive, tender, uncomely branch who will become the head of the corner, who will become the great tree. And for this day, such words compel us unto vigilance and obedience and faithfulness, so that in the days to come we might, even as we consider in our time this morning, Reign with him on high. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.